One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, we'll discuss the latest trends to come out of the LA screenings. Spoiler, they're mostly from 1987. And I'll talk to presenter Rory Reid ahead of the relaunch of Top Gear this Sunday. Also on the show, there's no change to the TV terms of trade. There's more signs of unease in Fleet Street as the Daily Mail's owners issue a profit warning. Chris Moyles has a tough time in the latest radio listening figures. And I promise, there will be almost no mentions at all of the BBC. White paper. How liberating is that? It's all to come on today's media podcast. And joining me this Friday at a suspiciously quiet hospital club, it is a sunny afternoon, uh, is the creative director of Folder Media and all-round radio dude, Mr. Matt Deegan. Matt, welcome back to the show. Hello, nice to be here. Uh, preparing for next radio conference at the moment, I guess? Absolutely, 19th of September, kind of you to ask. Uh, big names you can reveal at this stage? Uh, we'll be announcing the first wave on Wednesday. Oh, so come on. keep tuned Give to us Twitter. Rumor, nothing. Um, good radio folk and more. Good radio folk. Uh, good times for radio at the moment. Good atmosphere there. Do you think? Yeah, I think I think we're in a, a great period. Uh, revenues up. Uh, more stations launching. I think if you want to work in it, there's never been so many opportunities. Nice. Okay, it's good to start with some optimism, isn't it? Before we move on to the inevitable cynicism. Uh, <laughs> alongside Matt this week on the panel, multi-award-winning producer, uh, the man behind the royal family, him and her Friday night dinner. Uh, it is the CEO of Big Talk Productions, Mr. Kenton Allen. Hello, Kenton. Uh, good afternoon. Hello. Boy. Hi, yeah, well, it's a podcast, could be any time. Any time On like. demand. You're a very busy chap. Uh, tell us what you've been working on at the moment, and it, it better be cold feet. It is cold feet. Hey. I've just come back from Manchester, where we, uh, we wrap cold feet uh, a week today. And you're not going to tell me anything about that either, well, are you? Well, <laughs> I can tell you a few things about it. Uh, it's, uh, we've, we've, I've seen the first four episodes, and uh, can't wait to share them with the audience. It's tricky, isn't it, reviving a classic show? We're not reviving it, though. It's series six. Well, that's the There's crucial distinction, isn't it? There's just been a 14-year gap <laughs> between series five. So it's not... It's importantly, it's not a reboot. It's not Poldark. We're not remaking something. It's the original five cast members, apart from Helen Baxendale, whose character died in series five, and it's just series six. It happens to be 14 years later, but it is the next series. So it's, it, it's not a reboot. Um, it's not a reimagining. It's the same show. 
And can you re-engender that spirit on set as if, you know, that decade in the middle didn't happen? Well, it was, it was fascinating because I didn't work on the original series. Um, so getting the five actors back together again with Mike Buller and the original creator, it's the same team writing and, and acting. So it was pretty special when they all met. They hadn't really seen each other that much over the last... 14 years so uh, yeah it was uh, it was a high wire act and you've also got Raised by Wolves as well which is now heading to the stage yep. uh, you've worked with Caitlin Morin for a while haven't you I just, uh, Naked yeah, no, City I met, yeah yeah I met Caitlin when she was 18 and I was a little bit older when she was a presenter on Naked City with Johnny Vaughan she hated me when she was presenting Naked City she happily tells me often and uh, we're now working together again on, on Raised by Wolves and we've just we haven't announced it in fact the Guardian got hold of it somehow I blame Caitlin it's just been revealed that Diablo Cody, who is the Oscar-winning uh, writer of Juno, yeah. is adapting it for the US. So wow. that's quite exciting news. So she's in a position to tell you she hates you, even though you're an important man. Yes, <laughs> she is. Yes. She doesn't hate me anymore. No, no, no. no she now loves just, me. Just remember him on the way down, Caitlin. That's the important thing. Uh, now, just as we've come to air, if you like, although, as I say, is a podcast, um, we've just heard about the pack terms of trade. Yep. John Whittingdale says, no changes. No changes. Excellent news. Pack, uh, t- terms of trade remains. So the, the fantastic mechanism which has enabled British TV to be well-beating stays in place. So all John Whittingdale needs to do now is leave Channel 4 alone and uh, jobs are good and as we say. Was there a real serious worry that they wouldn't stay in place? Yes. And did that intensify once the white paper for the BBC came out? Sorry, I know I said I wouldn't mention no, it. No, no, they've been, it's been running alongside that, but it's, it's, uh, it's been a separate campaign about terms of trade. Whittingdale's review of sort of everything threw up questions about terms of trade, but uh, Pact had a fantastic lobbying campaign and they speak a lot of sense, and, and Whittingdale has happily listened. And are there similar concerns for radio indies, Matt, about all of this? Or can we now finally breathe easy? You know, John Whittingdale is the culture secretary, and it's all fine. Well, there's, a big, there's a big change. <laughs> mm, that's for, a sentence I haven't heard very often. There's a big change for, for radio, because uh, radio's never had uh, kind of quotas of formal quotas. Um, but uh, now, uh, from the white paper, uh, up to 60% of BBC radio, national BBC radio output, can be contestable. And that's a huge huge amount of um, of hours that are accessible for um, indies and what that also hopefully means that for the in-house teams that that keep programs as well it makes them work harder and the net results should be good for listeners um, but I think for for the independent sector a lot of opportunities and also for people who, who work in in, in the BBC or for the BBC opportunities to create their own indies or um, think about things a different way because there's a lot of work that they can they can win Presumably um, BBC Radio production will become part of BBC Studios There's no plan for it to become part um, of Studios I think it's because there isn't really anyone else to buy the programming except for the BBC yeah. It's commercial radio That is quite an odd that's an odd situation yes. in terms of the great certainly in comedy there is a great um, history of things moving from radio mm. to TV so mm. That's fascinating mm. and s- makes no sense. But then equally, there's some but kind of radio BBC. Broadcasting yeah, policy. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but then equally, there are some kind of programmes that the BBC makes on radio that really no one else does make. It's not like in telly where they say only we can make this and they're lying. I mean, you know, there, there is no one else set up to make that kind of show. Yeah, and, well, to a certain degree, so news is pretty much protected. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so news, and, then, and there wouldn't be any economic value in you know, not using the BBC's newsroom and news resource to do those sorts mm. of shows. Uh, but, you know, even like something like The Archers, you know, it's a drama. I used um, to work on the archers. Well, it's right. My so first job, I was the spot effects man on the archers. There's the, no wow. We could, we could make the archers. Very were, were you the guy in the background going? Yeah, there's somebody I at the was, door. Uh, Aunt Laura's dead body wrapped in quarter inch <laughs> tape, running around the floor. Uh, Eddie Grundy, you know, lots and lots of, of this sort of thing. 
Point of shires, please, uh, Eddie. <laughs> that sort of nonsense. And what, what, what caused you to leave Kenton? That sounds like it, that sounds like a potentially very long running career. Uh, I think I was asked to leave. Actually, <laughs> what, uh, did, what did you do wrong? Did she suddenly come well, alive? Well, the, the great thing about radio uh, or the Archer Studio is it has a fully practical kitchen. Um, and I used to get in at 7am and cook myself a full English breakfast, <laughs> which apparently the actors didn't appreciate when they came in at 8. <laughs> it's something to do with the smell. I can imagine that creating a country cottage vibe very yeah, well, yeah, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I can exclusively reveal the kitchen on the set of Lorraine is real as well, but not all of it. Oh. You've got to be careful. No extractor fan. Uh, right, that went very badly. We've mentioned the white paper a lot. This will be a Whittingdale free zone from now on, I promise. Uh, it's actually kind of because of the white paper last week been the quietest fortnight for media news for, for quite a long time. Um, so instead of Britain, we're going to turn immediately to LA, somewhere somewhere even sunnier than today on a nice Friday in uh, the summer. Um, lots of interesting trends coming out of the LA screenings. Now this is where indie TV companies meet to sell their shows in the open market. Uh, we've mentioned Raised by Wolves already, but there have been uh, many other shows talked about, of course. Matt, one of the big themes seems to be reboots. Yes, uh, if in doubt, go back to something that some people liked and uh, have another go at it. Uh, and you, know, you see it in, in film and television, uh, that doesn't seem to, to be stopping. But also, obviously, at the same time, explosion in uh, TV broadcasters, for want for a better word, Netflixes and Amazons of the world, who are hungry for, hungry for content. Is this all the fault of Fargo, basically? You know, they, they've suddenly realised if you've got a brand that even wasn't that popular as a film, but it's a recognisable name, you, you're more likely to build a successful TV show around well, it? By saying fault, you're suggesting it's a problem. And I'm I think not, it can I'm feel depressing sure. that well, everything is something we've heard before. I don't think audiences think that, because the audiences to Fargo are huge and the show's exceptionally good. So I think it's more complicated than that, because with the amount of... Of, of opportunity, opportunity to watch things that's out there now, if you're investing millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars in a, in a, in a TV franchise, getting an audience to it in the first place is incredibly challenging. So having a title that has some brand recognition and that will cut through in an incredibly cluttered marketplace is clearly something that when done correctly, can pay huge dividends. Okay, but let's look at some of these titles, because they really are, you know, going back to the 80s, MacGyver, yeah. Lethal Weapon, yeah. uh, The Exorcist. Yeah. Um, I learned a those long time ideas? ago not to judge things until I'd seen them. So I would, I would reserve judgment. We have some reboots in the works. We are developing Educating Rita, uh, the film and stage play as a returning TV series. I'm not supposed to tell you that, but I just have. And there are other things on our slate which are reboots or taking a title from another medium and moving it to TV. So I don't, I can understand why you think it looks like it's cheap and unimaginative. There's nothing cheap about this process. And, the, and as long as it's done imaginatively and with flair and brilliance and all those things that you need, then why not? But my point is, I guess, if you see a script and it's a buddy cop TV show and it's not called Lethal Weapon, doesn't it have to work that little bit harder to be original and interesting? Everything has to work hard to be originally interesting. You, I think you're using the title and the brand recognition and the useful baggage from the incredibly successful global movie franchise to try and get an audience to your $100 million investment. So for something like that um, project you've just talked about, um, do you do any research with audiences and like their perception of it or what they thought about it that helps influence the direction you take it in or does the creative team just go no it's, a, it's, a, it's, cre it's driven by us and the writer and it's mm. on instinct and, and what we think is best practice and no we don't we don't research titles and go well that would be because 100 people in the street or something mm. like to see it that 
that's a different sort of job. That's not the job I want to do. Okay. And you were talking earlier about how it had been 14 years or whatever since the last uh, series of Cold Feet, yeah. but it's the same show. Yeah. Uh, on that basis, is it too soon to say... 24, that's not a new series, that's a reboot. I mean, it's only been, what, three or four years since the last series? Prison Break well, it's not, was it's, only six years ago. It's 24 Legacy, isn't it? So it's a different... It's, again, using the architecture of the original series, but it's a completely different cast. It's a sort of diffusion range spin-off of the original brand. But if you've got such a powerful brand and you've pumped millions of dollars into it and you have sales globally and lots of networks have bought it internationally, then... I don't see the issue with having a, a spin-off series from that. OK, let's talk about who does buy these programmes internationally, because it, it sort of feels a bit to me as a viewer, like I sort of imagine if it's an American show and it's not on Sky Atlantic, it will probably be shit. Is that fair? <laughs> I mean, have, have they just hoovered, because they've got Showtime, they've got HBO. It's rare, isn't it? The People versus O.J. Simpson was brilliant. If you see something on the BBC, you sort of assume it won't be as good. Uh, or that uh, those networks uh, just said, said no to it. So either it's, it's more niche and it's going... It's like the Nordic equivalent yes. of, of pick-up on Yeah, no, I mean... But, like, but, AM, but an AMC UK has had, yeah. hasn't been taking all the AMC US stuff, have they? No. For, because there is an economic value to AMC selling their best shows up to the highest bidder to Channel 4 or to Sky... And you know the Sky output deals with Showtime and HBO means there's some shit there as well. Vinyl, forty-eight mm. million dollars for the pilot. Martin Scorsese, Scorsese, Jagger, all of that. It's not very good. No, or, or it's, dis- it's, uh, it's disappointing. Uh, and there's a hugely competitive market for those shows. Obviously, the Sky output deals that they do cost them a lot of money, and they use it to drive subscription. But there's plenty of, of great American acquisitions on, on Channel 4. You've got the deepest pockets for acquisitions in, in terrestrial broadcasters. And actually, I don't really want ITV and BBC to be competing for those shows. I want them to spend their money on original British content. Yeah, I mean, it tends not to work, actually, when ITV buys a big American series, doesn't it? They had the Americans, they had Dexter, but they, they tend to sort of put it out once and then squirrel it away at 11 yeah, o'clock at never, night. Ne- it hasn't really ever worked for them in recent years. I can't, th- I can't remember what has worked for them, but the days of Dallas playing at 8pm mm. on BBC One are gone, you know, that, and, and thank God, because what we want with our licence fee is for that money to be invested in original British content, British actors, British writers, British producers, not going to very well-funded and rich Hollywood studios. So in in many ways, it's sort of happened by market forces, but that the quota system, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, the Netflix quota system is a really good thing for, for British audiences and British British creatives. And also I think that... Um I think there is an issue with, with some American shows and people who'd be really big fans and would maybe drive the enthusiasm of it is that they've already seen them before they start to be broadcast in the UK. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there needs to be millions of people having 100,000 super fans who've bit-torrented a series. Um, yes, they'll be positive about it, but I think it does weaken the takeoff of some of those things. And you see yeah, Game of Thrones try and get as close to simulcast as possible to nip that in the butt. Yep. I think that's that's had a bit of an effect. Yeah, I saw someone who was in charge of acquisitions at ITV saying they might be looking for something for the Baywatch slot. I thought that was an interesting reference because that was about 20 years ago. But I sort of know what they mean, you know, yeah, pre tea time so, yeah, on Saturday. Yeah, yeah. Well, you you can, there is lots, obviously there's lots of content out that you can acquire and that spending huge amounts of money in that, in that tea time slot as was recently proven with, with Jekyll and Hyde and Beowulf, is a very high-risk strategy, and you can lose a lot of money. 
So acquiring something at a, at a lower cost. With a big brand, like you were just saying With before. With a big brand, and that's an interesting thing to do. Baywatch was ITV, wasn't it? It was, yeah. It was a huge show for them. So maybe that's, that's an interesting strategy for them about, about how to spend their programming budget strategically and commercially in an area of the schedule where there's not much money, but where they could grow a, a scripted uh, brand. Have you been to the LA screenings before? Yes. I've been as a producer, but you, uh, you know, it, or it's the studios that are selling the shows, not the producers. So it's Sony and Warner Brothers. And along with the networks, so it's a frenzy of people trying to say you things. A lot of lunches, I imagine. There's a lot of watching t- television. It, it, I know it doesn't sound exhausting. It is exhausting because you're in there watching shows back to back to back to back to back all day, every day for a week. Nothing and like that in the radio industry, is there, Matt? Uh, no, there's no radio upfronts. But yeah. what, in America, what you're finding now is your is people like NPR and uh, iHeartRadio have started to create their own upfronts for their internet-driven audio series. So something like Serial has kicked off a sort of interest in non-traditional radio, and they've had to create an event for it. And so tying into the online upfronts um, has been quite successful for those new entrants. And of course, in, in a, a podcasting upfront, I guess what the, the creators of the shows are looking for are advertisers rather than people to host them, because it's all free online. You know, there are some of those shows now that get on broadcast networks, but I think it's kind of to create noise. Obviously, I'm waiting for the the spin-off of this show, the American version, the yeah. South American version. You can find the Portuguese Ollie Man, and maybe that could be a big success. We're, we're working. I didn't want to talk about it on the show, but we're, we're working on an American version with Matthew Perry. Actually, you've you've effortlessly segued us into talking about our next story, which is staying in the US, but is about uh, podcasts. The podcast Stat Trackers Pod Track, who monitor downloads for a huge host of US networks, have released some really juicy figures. Uh, what Pod Track do is you put uh, their address into the RSS feed so they can track, they say more accurately than anyone else in the world, exactly how many people are downloading your show. So there's an issue with podcasts. Sometimes someone might download it twice or sometimes it might be a bot. They claim to get rid of all of that so they can have stats, they can sell advertisers. What do you think, Matt, of the idea that they've actually made these statistics public, presumably without the permission of the people who actually own the shows who have these stats. Well, if, if I was tracked by them, and I'm sure paying for the, the privilege, I'd be somewhat shocked to see my numbers published. So, podcast... Nobody else has to well, they publish the figures of our television shows. <laughs> but I don't really you, understand that. But it's but not you, Barb who are selling your commercials, I suppose. No. But you do know uh, when you put uh, a show on, secrecy? that's going to happen. Yeah, but why, why the secrecy? Well, I think one of the interesting bits from the, the pod track data um, is download data is still really flaky. Mm. And no matter who says they think it's accurate uh, they're wrong because just because I download a podcast does not mean I've listened to it you're breaking um, my heart uh, it doesn't mean um, or that I've had it on in a room of 20 people listening to it it's not you know it's not an accurate measure it's an it's an okay metric to have comparing everyone in the same way but also I think it it probably uh, better reflects bigger podcasts than smaller ones. So uh, if I'm new to podcasting, you know, I hit a serial button or um, I hit uh, Football uh, Weekly or, or something like that because it's got name recognition. Uh, and you know, most podcast listeners, when you look at their podcast player, there are a lot of unlistened to episodes and it gets to a point where they just delete off the ones they're never going to get round to. And that's one of the issues. We work with uh, Fun Kids, we work with an Australian company called Omni, who track all of our audio on the web and in downloads. And when you really look at the download data, it does odd things. One of the things they're doing is they're tracking the live streaming data, 
which is much more accurate, much more accurate. Some data that came out yesterday uh, from Edison Research is showing that the subscribing and the save as downloading is dropping off as a podcast consumption thing. And actually what's happening is people are pressing play and streaming it. And when they're streaming a file, much more easy to track. How far do they get through it? Um, And that's much more connected to to what their listening is like. I've just looked at my phone. I've got 27 downloaded and listened to podcasts because they're automatically downloaded. But, I mean, as you were hinting, actually, although there might be grievances within the industry, actually this this shows, doesn't it, that people want to take podcasting seriously as a medium. Absolutely. It's another new form of content. What is the the top podcast, then, according to their data? Well, the NPR network is the number one rated network. Uh, Actually, if you look at individual shows, I think, judging from that, 99% Invisible is doing bloody well. Roman Mars is in the top ten with just one show. I think it's about number eight, whereas NPR have, you know, 25 shows or something. Yeah, I was sort of surprised. I, can't, I haven't got the numbers to hand, but I think when you get to kind of nine or ten, some of those networks like CBS with uh, 40 different series, yeah. and that could be you know, over a month, you know, 100 plus episodes. Actually, when you start dividing it down to how many listens that they're getting, you know, five, ten thousand, uh, not very big. I think the, the interesting thing about Serial in the UK anyway, so Komodo Mayo's Five Live show uh, has more consumption than Serial does. It's an excellent uh, show. I, I have, I've got 14 episodes of it downloaded. <laughs> still to, still to listen to. to, listen to yeah. um, but I think I know it, it, and it doesn't necessarily have the, the sexiness of the super podcast experience, uh, but it does show there's a lot of material out there that is consumed yeah. a great deal. Uh, I should clarify, actually, PodTrack have only tracked the shows that have put their code into their RSS, which is only about 75% okay. of commercial American shows. It yeah, doesn't include month, anything on the BBC. And next month it might be a shorter list. Indeed, yes, <laughs> <laughs> quite right. Uh, right, uh, Kenton as well, just whilst we're talking about podcasts, I should ask you about podcasts making it to telly, because no such thing as a fish is now on BBC Two in, in a form. Yes. Is that a wise investment by these channels, or is it actually just cheap programming? Uh, I don't think it's cheap programming. I think it's a way of discovering new talent. So, and it's, it enables people who don't need to ask permission to make something to make something. So that, that's, you know, that's what the digital revolution has done. It's enabled all sorts of people to make content. I suppose the reason it's cheap is you don't actually have to be involved in the development. Someone's created a show, made it for five or ten years, and then you come along and say, come and do it on our channel. And, and you, there's less risk, I guess. But that's always been the case of, you know, people have been doing stand-up shows at Edinburgh for five or ten years and putting stuff on YouTube. It's not, it's, it's you know, the risk is still there. The transfer transfer of an audio-only format to television and a visual medium is hugely risky and hugely challenging and hugely difficult. I haven't seen there's nothing, what's the fish podcast. <laughs> um, I don't know how telegenic those individuals are or how that show works as a, as a TV show, but it doesn't make it any easier. The risk is still there. It's just a great bit of A&R for finding new talent, new voices. Okay. I, wa- I watched the first episode of that. I was sort of surprised how cheap it looked. Mm. And there was a bit of me that went, actually, this is late. This is quite late on mm. BBC Two, a constricted BBC. Are we going to see actually a bit more of this? Or as someone on my Twitter feed says, like, I'll lend them my DSLR and maybe look a bit more. <laughs> well, no, but that, the, that's the issue, isn't it? Is that John Lloyd pitched it to the head of BBC News, I think. It's being produced by News. So it's, it's, he's, he's bypassed the normal mm. commissioning processes because he hates them and finds them irritating and just wants to make it so he brilliantly found a path of least resistance 
but with no real money there, so it's being made or you know hmm. it's being made at very low cost. Um, I think the problem is that you then judge that against all other panel shows, and it's not the same as all other hmm. panel shows because of its history and. And also, possibly you say this is how all podcasts will be when they transfer to TV, and well, of course not, that's not no, necessarily not true, true at all. No, at all. Yeah. Oh, but the, but one, I was sort of torn. I was watching it, thinking like, is this bad television or actually is it going you know what it doesn't necessarily matter what it looks like the guys were very funny they are well practiced because they've, they've done the podcast mm. but it did just make me sit there sort of just think about it for, for the 20 minutes it was on okay well a tv show everyone will be judging this weekend is the relaunch of top gear uh, and one of the less well-known presenters is rory reed rory took part in the open auditions but he's actually a motoring journalist of some years standing by trade uh, recently i interviewed him for my other show the modern man and here is a section of the interview that hasn't been heard before exclusively for the media podcast let's listen one of your Facebook posts a couple of months ago said, does anyone know a black stunt driver? I'm guessing they'd never used a black stunt driver before. <laughs> no, no. They've, well, they've never had a black presenter. And when I say stunt driver, so they, what, what, what happens is... Oh, I've opened a box of worms now, haven't I? I know you're driving the car. Not always, but here's, here's, what, here's what happens. If we have uh, multiple cars to film and, and one presenter, such as what happened in, um, in Scotland on the Mustang shoot, we have multiple units. So I'll be in one car with the yellow Mustang, for example... And I'll be reviewing all three cars, but I can't drive them all at once. If a car is not moving and not being filmed, time's being wasted. So we have a second unit where they're in charge of getting the shots of maybe the, a close-up of the wheels moving or something, or the car driving down a road in a straight line or whatever. And I, I can't drive three cars at once, so we need someone who vaguely looks like me that can pass for the guy that's that's you know do, just driving a car in a, in a, in a particular location. And yeah, it's tough because you know, you if if there's a white guy suddenly in a shot, it's going to look super weird. <laughs> yes, that would look weird. Which, which yeah. is which is why which is why I asked for a uh, any black stunt. And did they find a British black stunt driver? They haven't yet. No. no. <laughs> so I do, so I do a lot of driving. Yeah, brilliant. You get to a do lot. more of your own stunts. Yeah, exactly. I do I do all my own stunts. I do a lot of driving. And part of the format of the show is about the sort of interpersonal relationships between all the uh, people presenting it. So I think this is a fair question. Yeah. Uh, who would you most like to go for a drink with? Um, Sabine. Because Sabine, Sabine's mental. I've been to her house already. I've been for a drink with Sabine. Nice. She's got a cockerel called Adolf. She's got a wild pig as a pet. She has horses. And uh, you walk in and there's... Sounds a lot like you telling a story to the press right now. <laughs> <laughs> one of your yeah. presenters. I don't know. Well, this, this, this will be out there. We, like, we have, a, we have a, a spin-off show called Extra Gear. Actually, uh, one other point. Almost everyone else in the presenting lineup is a millionaire. Yeah, what's that like? I mean, just uh, you they know. might all be. Yeah, they yeah. might all be millionaires. Yeah. But, I mean, Eddie Jordan stands out, but obviously Chris yeah, yeah. Evans not exactly a pauper. He's loaded. Yeah. Does that does that change like what you can talk about and how you talk about things? Do you think? No, I haven't spent as much time as I'd like with everyone else because all of my films that I've shot for this new series are solo, so it's me in a car by myself. But in the studio, which we start filming next week, that's when we'll get an idea of the the banter between the presenters in a, in a studio environment. So I'm interested to see how that goes. After I talk to you, I'm going to go and hang out with Chris Harris because he, he's going to co-host Extra Gear. Mm-hmm. So we're going to sit down and go through the scripts and the, the format for the show and, and figure out how that's going to go. Maybe we won't have any chemistry, but you know that's, that's, that's what you have to do. You have to hang out with people and, and see what happens. If, if I were you, I'd have a big picture of Matt LeBlanc on my wall at home and I'd just keep saying Matt, 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 Matt. Otherwise, Instead first time Joey. I meet him, Joey. <laughs> <laughs> for Extra Gear, um, we were filming some behind-the-scenes stuff featuring him. And uh, my Extra Gear camera crew had been told by the powers that be, don't get in Matt's face, don't talk to him. 
you know, they'll handle it. You know, they'll talk, they'll take him to one side and figure it out. And they were like, okay, 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 we won't, we won't get in his face. And Matt pulls up, he sees me, he goes, hey, Rory. And he immediately walks over. And uh, I just called the camera crew over. Let's go, let's go, let's, go, let's talk. And he was, he's totally d- down to earth. Like we started filming. I'm like, look, extra gears here. We're filming you behind the scenes today. He's like, okay, cool. No problem. Yeah, it's good cop, bad cop, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Got it. That's, the, that's the secret. My experience talking to celebrities, yeah. you've, got to have, you've got to be really nice, but then yeah. you've got to have people around you who are like, do not look him in the eye. Yeah, 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 exactly, <laughs> exactly, yeah. That's yeah. what you need to get your agent on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but he's, he's, he's a cool guy. Um, Chris Evans, I've worked with him a couple of times on this new series, and uh, he's a perfectionist, that guy. It's nice watching him work, because as he's preparing himself for what he's going to say in a particular segment, he's also directing everyone around him. So as he's running through his lines, he'll see a cameraman standing in the wrong place and he'll say, no, no, you need to move. You need to come over here because I want it shot from this angle. So he's thinking how it's looking on TV from all angles, directing the cameraman. He's not, he's not the director, but he's, he knows how TV is made. He knows what makes him and the car look good. So watching him work is, is, uh, is fascinating. Rory Reid there, you can watch him on Top Gear this Sunday and you can hear the rest of that interview. There's 25 minutes more of it that's completely different to that. We talk about how he got the job on Top Gear and how he's been affected by the tabloids looking into his personal life on my other show, also produced by uh, producer Matt, The Modern Man. Uh, you can find us at modernman.co.uk uh, or of course we're on iTunes as well, itunes.com slash man. Kenton, are you going to be watching on Sunday? Absolutely. And what you said you wouldn't judge anything before you've seen it, nope. but I'm asking you to. Completely open mind. What will be fascinating is not what happens on Sunday, because we'll all have our own view of the show and how it performs and what Evans is like and what the new team are like and how much of the format they've retained. So, you know, all of those brilliant clocks and ideas, are they still in there? Uh, and we know the star in the reasonably priced car is now a star in a reasonably priced mini a format tweak which is not going to knock anybody's socks off the, the, the real question is how many viewers will be there in episode 6 because the, the, the initial show will be huge uh, let's put a bet on 6, 7 million oh I like it let's play, play your cards okay. right I'm going to go I'm going to go 8 wow you've yeah. already gone higher on your own estimation well, I, yeah. <laughs> 7 7 that's going 7 yeah. uh, but how many of those will hang around yeah. by episode 6 is, will be the real test of it I'm sure the show will be entertaining and you know, you either like Evans or you don't. There's going to be enough variety in the in the range of presenters there to make it interesting. It's just how original will it be, and how much will you miss the the, the kind of sitcom family of, of uh, Clarks and Hammond and May, and that that brilliant chemistry they built up over many years. It's very hard to create that instantly. And I'm sure Matt the Blank will be brilliant, and he's a very funny individual. But has he got chemistry with Evans? Is that something that's going to keep us coming back? Well, this is the concern, isn't it? It's, it's basically an entertainment format, isn't it, more than a motoring show? And with entertainment formats, they tend not to hit the ground running. So although this is a show that's been going for decades, actually this should be viewed well, as the first episode of a new thing. Rebooted Top Gear Season 1 has a different presenter lineup than the three of them. Um, I think what's interesting with this is they've got a little bit of freedom to see how well each of those seven presenters do. Um, because also when it was announced to what it is now, being more of a two-hander between Matt LeBlanc and Chris Evans, 
they didn't talk about that. I think that sounds like something they have seen as the sh- as the, probably they've done the filming of, of those uh, all those little films. Um, but it gives them a bit of room to see yeah. who does well. Also, in which territories around the world those people do well. I mean, this is a proper international show that needs to work in multiple places. It is, and it, and interestingly, Matt LeBlanc's just had a sitcom picked up by CBS, mm. so he's on a CBS sitcom contract, which will be a five-year minimum deal for yeah. 22 episodes a year his availability plan, that's yeah I mean his, his availability to shoot top gear will be challenging if he's on a, the American sitcom cycle if he's brilliant and they want to go again they're going to have to wait for him for quite a long time or they have to rethink or do something else so it's, it's, it's going to be fascinating there's also uh, you alluded seven presenters uh, we were betting uh, on how many people can be watching would you be prepared to bet how many of the seven will still be there <laughs> in a year's time I think Rory's going to be alright because he's presenting extra gear so even if he gets booted off the main show he's got his own <laughs> spin off but what about everyone else six other presenters do we still think they're going to be part of the lineup in it a year's time it becomes very easy to say they've got, they're busy with other projects and they can't come back for another year Apologies um, for this, but it could be a bit of a car crash. <laughs> uh, and with that, um, let's go to the break. That should be on that bombshell. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <sure. laughs> right, on with our next story. In just a moment, that isn't this bit. You know what this bit is. This is the bit where we ask you for your money. Yeah, you don't get off that lightly. If you haven't taken out a voluntary subscription to the Media Podcast yet, why not? You will help support the show. You will help us make the show. It is with your money that we are able to deliver this show to your ear holes. Go now to themediapodcast.com slash dedicate and pledge what you can. Now we'll go back to the show. Right, time now for some stories in brief, uh, and let's talk print, well, digital news anyway. Alan Rusbridger, former editor of The Guardian, has decided not to take up the role of chairman of the Scott Trust, which owns The Guardian Media Group. Uh, he was due to start that in September. Uh, Matt, this has uh, been seen as a bit of a coup for Kath Viner, the, the current editor. Of course, yeah. she was appointed you know, by Rusbridger as part of his process. I'm not sure Alan has decided is probably the, the biggest, oh, yeah, uh, most, the most accurate assessment of that. I think one of the things it shows, isn't it, the the world changes fast, and if you're not around to be part of those discussions, some other people will. His, his editorial, you know, ability and success is, is unquestionable, but it's a loss-making organisation. It loses about a million pounds a week. His refusal to embrace any sort of paywall or digital... Uh, economy for the Guardian is uh, how can you do that? You know, if you're running a business, which is what his job was. You know, the, the journalism is one thing, but the losing a million pounds a week is another thing. And David Pemsel, who I work with at, at Shine, who's part of the original launch team of Shine with with Liz Murdoch, is a very, very smart, very commercial individual who won't want to sit there losing forty five million pounds a year. So the Rusbridger era is over for the Guardian. You can't continue to lose that amount of money and get away with it particularly when you have you know you've got a very valuable digital uh brand there that is not um getting any return on the investment yeah i and mean that, the, the issue with having him at the scott trust is i guess that's the organization that says no carry on losing money it's fine uh, they're the buffer aren't they they also trade of money doesn't last forever though does it no you know, it's rapidly running out and I think running out at a faster rate than they'd expected yeah. at the point in which it was supposed to be the buffer that took them through to profitability. Okay, let's go from the uh, Guardian to one of the other big English language news sites in the world, the Mail. Uh, the Daily Mail and General Trust, who own the Daily Mail uh, and its Sunday title as well, released its half-year results this week. 
Figures revealed strong growth for Mail Online, unsurprisingly, up £12 million compared to just six months earlier. But the print revenues are down by £18 million, which has led the trust to issue a profit warning. The context here, though, is we're seeing cuts at The Guardian, cuts at The Telegraph, possibly The Mirror as well. What do you think is going on? Well, the mail proves that it's much cheaper to reprint other people's articles than to make <laughs> your own. Um, so uh, is it a surprise that print revenues are in decline? No. Uh, I think these things have seemed to level off a bit recently uh, and with digital growth you know, still still providing more benefits to those publications. But I think everyone has had a tough first six months of the year as people's advertisers' spending habits are changing at a significant clip and also digital display, traditional banner-based display, not a sexy format, uh, something that's having a lot of issues with ad blocking, which now is becoming a real thing, not just a thing that we talk about. Um, so you can't just benefit from the market increasing. And so that, that's your double, your double trouble, isn't it? Your, your, your print's definitely now in the toilet, and even your bright new future of online is in growth, but maybe not at the speed in the format you need it to be. The advertisers, though, Kenton, are apparently going to digital. Tesco and BT apparently yeah. spending more and more now on digital, less and less on print. Do you think that's wise? I mean, if you were in charge of their strategy, would you be saying, yeah, we need to reach more people digitally? The best way to reach the most people is television. You know, yeah. ITV is still the biggest uh, audience available to any advertiser, and that's why its advertising revenue is, still, is pretty robust, despite all the the fears at the moment it's a very robust business but it's um, less bespoke you don't know exactly who's watching you just know millions of them are but if you want mass uh, that's what you need to do and and th- those big brands you know have a, have a sophisticated strategy of mass and and class so they they know you know they've got a they've got a sophisticated matrix for getting large numbers and also targeting the, the niche do so, i care that daily mail is losing money no do I care that investment in quality journalism is under threat because of the, the decline in print? Yes, it's it's being a journalist now, being a writer is incredibly challenging. They don't, you know, rates of pay have gone down, opportunities have gone down, entry points have gone down. So, where is the next generation of of print journalists? Where are they being trained? How are they going to be paid? How are you going to make a living doing it? That's a real threat, I think, to you know our, the, our, the society and the culture in which we live. If we if we haven't got well funded, well resourced. Journalists, journalists at newspapers being paid properly to do their job. Of course, if you move 15% of your uh, TV ad spend to radio, it gives you seven times return on investment. <laughs> uh, well, again, Matt, you've pushed <laughs> us on to our next topic. This is your moment to shine. Uh, we're going to talk Ray Jars. Come back, everybody. I've, I've had some people say my favourite bit of the media podcast is the in-depth radio analysis. Oh, I've had very much other people say the opposite. <laughs> uh, but if you're a radio nerd, this is the bit we do once a quarter with Matt Deegan, which you will absolutely love. Uh, the radio industry's audience body has released its figures for this quarter. Uh, not good news for Chris Moores. Let's start off with that. Uh, no, complex. It's all. It's hard. It's not complex. He's lost half his audience. He's only lost half his audience in half the country. In the other half of the country, he's tripled it. Tell us how. So the, so the problem with Moyles is, uh, so XFM used to be on London, used to be in London and Manchester on FM with a splattering of digital around the country. It's now a national radio station on DAB with simulcasting on London and Manchester FM. They put Moyles on at the breakfast show. Uh, and they spent a lot of money on marketing and they spent a lot of money on Moyles. The show is a good show. Uh, it's very listenable. He has mellowed slightly. It's, um, it's an interesting thing. However, uh, this is their first figures uh, nationally. And what's happened? In the bits outside of London and Manchester, uh, his audience has pretty much tripled. Wow. So that's people who um, never listen to XFM, 
obviously don't like what they can get on the radio in, in their places where they live and, and have moved to that show. And not only are they more people listening, the amount they're listening to that radio station has increased at an even higher rate. So, you know, they, they really like consuming that content and him particularly. In London and Man- in Manchester, it's pretty much flat from, from the old station and the old breakfast show with Tim Cocker, who's now on Virgin Radio. In London, he's seen a massive drop. Um, and some of that might be some radio sampling bits and pieces. You know, radio is all about trends. One-off quarters isn't, isn't you know, the perfect representation. But the drop is significant. And you, you would say they have perhaps churned a hell of a lot of XFM, more XFM listeners than they'd expected to. Uh, they haven't been able to top up right. with new Radio X listeners. The question is, have they got the right marketing mix for that show and that station in super competitive places? You know, we were just talking in London on, on digital radio, only which you know, over half of the of Londoners have. There are seventy radio stations mm. on the dial. You know, it's even with Moyles and a, a decently accessible mainstream rock format, it is hard to cut. So it could be transitional. They could be. They could have lost that hardcore London audience that would that found the old XFM, and they've got to grow that now. And it's going to take longer because the format's changed, the music policy's changed. Absolutely. So, so I think they're pretty much starting from scratch everywhere. Yeah. If you look at XFM network as, as a total now, uh, sorry, Radio X network as a total now, it's up to a 1.2 million reach. Um, up from sort of 800,000. So you talk to the, 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 the global guys, they'll say, you know, we have built a new radio station from scratch and it has more than a million listeners. And I know that if you were to ask the controller of Radio X, he'd probably say, well, radios never do very well for us. They never did very well for XFM because we're aimed at kind of basically men in their 20s to 40s who... When Non-diary the ra- tickers. When the radio guy comes around and says, would you like a £40 Marks and Spencer voucher, aren't there. Mm. Um, so the kind of people that listen to Radio X just don't fill in the diaries. Is that fair? Uh, not really. I think one the reason radio costs the industry so much money is it's a massive survey. They survey 25,000 people a quarter, uh, which change every quarter, 100,000 people a year. Um, they, they get all the sampling right. You know, they, they, find, they build that into the they sampling. Ha- and they, they, have to f- they, they, you know, they would understand that. And they have to find all those people, and they spend more money and more effort trying to to get those people to either fill in the diary or do it online or on their phones, which they can now do. Okay, so uh, let's talk about London still and talk about BBC London. They had a big rebrand, didn't they? They're now Radio London, and their audience is not very good. Um, I think LBC News, which is uh, a rolling kind of news package radio station, is doing better than uh, BBC London is. Which is on AM in most people's cars. Absolutely. Which is, I mean, that's bizarre, isn't it? Um, Yeah, I I think one of the issues for BBC London is, you know, what is a BBC London radio station for you know BBC Shropshire does very well because the market the people who listen to that radio station are all quite similar and live similar lifestyles or have done BBC London you know diverse market um, and also we have another lo- local London radio station it's called Radio 4 <laughs> and you know that's that is London's most popular radio station yeah by far um, and that sucks up a lot of a, a lot of that audience is it possible f- you know, th- they've sort of changed some of the presenters on BBC London um, and it's made you know, it's taken the people who did listen to it have, have kind of pushed them away. Maybe what they should do with BBC London is replace it with one extra, uh, or the Asian Network, or, or, or do something a bit more different, or even maybe Six Music. Is Robert Elms their biggest show? Uh, I don't know anymore because uh, they, they've switched him to to mid mornings, right. I think. Um, but it's it, uh, it's it's difficult. It's a difficult challenge for them. Uh, they are seemingly not doing a very good job at it at the moment. I think Six Music is bigger than than BBC London is. Okay, you're allowed one more Rage R headline. It's your choice. Well, I'm loving it. Yeah. I used to work in radio. I think this is the most fascinating part of my week. So the one it's I'd Kiss or LBC or it's Radio 1. You no, choose. the one I'd say is digital radio consumption. 
Okay. So uh, this is listening on DAB, DTV, or the internet. Um, accounts for, uh, I think we're up to, I haven't got the numbers in front of me, are 44%, I think. Wow. That is a huge, that is a huge percentage. You know, that's, um, no matter what platform you like and, and you listen to, you know, we've created, the radio industry has created a selection of services and platforms, um, non-traditional ones, that half, half of all listening now is given to those places. Wow. That might be listening to LBC outside of London, that might be listening to uh, Capital on FM, that might be listening to, um, talk sport on the internet um, I think, and this is great news for radio because you know, we're not tied to those FM and AM transmitters you know it's a proper multi-platform beast and I think that's again why we're in quite a good position and the money's going up is because um, it's relatively flexible Okay, uh, Radio Nerd, you're going to get one more story, uh, but we're going to move on to the story about the new presenter of Pick of the Pops. Uh, Tony Blackburn, of course, no longer at the BBC for reasons we've discussed previously. They've now replaced him permanently with Paul Gambaccini. Hurrah. Uh, uh, plus, Fern Cotton is coming to Saturday mornings. Do we get a hurrah for that or a boo? That's a no comment. You get a no <laughs> comment from Kenton. Uh, she's going to be co-hosting a show with, um, I've forgotten his name, what's his Martin, name? Martin um, Kemp. Yes. Thank you. She's going to be co-hosting a show with Martin Kemp on Saturday mornings whilst yeah. Graham Norton is on his summer break. Uh, Kenton, you hurrahed first of all about Gambo the return of Gambo. I think he's one of the great broadcasters. He's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, a huge fan. He's got encyclopedic knowledge. He's a brilliant storyteller. He's American Chart Show, mm. which is on Saturday nights, I think. He's brilliant. He's, bri- he's a brilliant broadcaster. He's a brilliant man. You know, he's had a terrible time, um, uh, uh, unreasonably and unjustly, and it's great the BBC are having him back. I think it's to be applauded, and I shall be listening. But, uh, I mean, it's very difficult to fill Blackburn's shoes, obviously, especially under these circumstances. But they had Mark Goodyear filling yeah. in for yes. him recently, yeah. who, I mean, personally, I think is quite a bland presenter. But mm. for that, like, he's known for the charts. Yes. In a way, is a better fit than Gambo, well, isn't it? I think... W- I think Mark Goodyear does a great job. And I think for people uh, of our age who grew up with Mark Goodyear doing the chart, who have maybe moved, whether reluctantly or not, to listen to Radio 2, he's a, he's a great fit. Um, I think Dale Winton did it before Tony did, Blackburn. Yeah. Um, so it's a very, it's a big sort of twist. But actually, maybe that's what he needs, you know, replicating a yeah, sort I of... I think so. I think, it's, of, I think it could be really exciting because I think... It, I listen to Brian Masters occasionally on Saturday morning. What sound of the sixties? Yeah, because he because he, he drops in little uh, uh, nuggets of story or or history or biography. And I think if Gambaccini does that on on what is a fairly standard chart show and just brings it to life, it could be great listening. I think because he's and his knowledge is probably he's probably the best in the country at having that detailed knowledge of of the history of rock and roll. Okay, and the Fern Cotton thing, mm. uh, let's, I, I mean, perhaps unfairly to her, but uh, sorry, I'm going to focus on the fact she's a woman because we're talking yes. about Radio 2. Is Bob Shannon doing enough with this to bring women to the station? Basically, all the deputies are women, but there aren't very many women in daytime. Well, the problem is that there are now 972 people waiting for the uh, daytime <laughs> schedule on Radio 2 to change. Uh, it just, there just be more and more people, uh, from Zoe Ball and Sarah Cox... Um, now, yeah, now and that's just the, the the women. I mean, there's a whole load of men as well who quite like Richard Madeley, Chris Tarrant, get yeah. their hands Richard on Richard Bacon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, so it's it's the ultimate jungle. Now there is a Radio Two extra with all these people <laughs> that would be absolutely. That's a very good idea. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Be better, well, they wanted, they wanted six music to be that, but and this is this is the challenge that, that they face, and also it doesn't help all of those 972 that the daytime lineup on Radio Two is so strong, it is almost 
bulletproof. You know, someone like Steve Wright, love him or hate him. Love the show, Steve. Uh, as many people do. Millions of listeners. I mean, really difficult to go, you know what, we're going we're gonna to change this for the good of the, you know, because we think we should. I think Furnas Presenter has uh, improved massively, as, as did Sarah Cox, from, you know, very sort of wobbly start on Radio 1 something that's a very funny down to earth relatable presenter now any of them I think could um, c- could do it but do you want to replace someone who's brilliant at the moment? No and also let's face it, it there's a shameful shameful lack of diversity it's an all white lineup. it has been for years it's you know the, the scrutiny that we are rightly under in television about increasing diversity which is to be applauded what on earth is going on in radio Moira Stewart reads the news Kenton that's you know, enough for everybody to- tokenism you know it's yeah. just not good enough and they're getting away with it I don't understand it and I think also that's even before you look behind the scenes yeah, exactly um, you know, you know, radio is a, you know, is a it's hideously white, white exactly yeah, yeah no good point so, alright uh, as, as we all are <laughs> indeed yes and we're all men uh, right finally this week let's talk about Netflix and Amazon uh, being given some scheduling advice by the European Commission Kenton you alluded to this earlier you think it's a good thing well I think it's a good thing yeah what's I mean, the story uh, the European Commission are, have decided that Netflix and Amazon need to produce 20% of their content from domestic producers in, in Europe um, the French are very strong on that as we know in terms of their, their, their commitment to domestic production um, it's happened organically here with, with uh, British broadcasters because audiences prefer domestic content to foreign content on the whole. And Americans love the accent. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Netflix and Amazon are doing it anyway. I don't, you know, there's not a lack of it going on. And I think they're a bit annoyed about the EU sticking their oar in. Um, but it's to, to be applauded because it just reminds them that they need to serve lo- the, the local audiences as well as the global audiences, and you want a rich mix of, of shows. And, you know, I know that um, Netflix are, they have just announced their first Latin American series, they have big plans to produce domestic content in, in local territories, and the UK is not a priority because it's English language, but they've got a team working on where they can produce local content in their growth areas. So it's, sort of, it's probably unnecessary, but it doesn't hurt to remind enormous American corporations that they have a responsibility to, to, to provide local content as well as these global kind of mega brands Netflix repertoire I think at the moment is 21% um, is it? Uh, European so they're kind of it's slightly exceeding the, the thing but you do wonder how much of that um, is British it is probably uh, the vast majority of that and also it? the other option is you could just you know buy every old episode of something like Pointless um, you know, if you want to play the numbers game, um, but they won't do that because that, that won't deliver an audience. But they don't need; they just need to be. In, to. They just need it to be in the. I mean, in they're, the, spending the hundred, they're spending a hundred million dollars a series on the Crown. You know, that's that's the biggest ever drama series commissioned out of the UK. They're they're not slow in coming to us wanting content. I think the European um, point of view is probably a bit more protectionist about France, Germany, Italy, Spain, where. There's not so much demand in a, in, from Netflix for that content. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves 
feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Right. Uh, before we go, there is just time for our media quiz. What? Uh, This week it is entitled Digital Disruptor. Uh, We were all set to make the questions really easy, but then Mobile Network 3 blocked anything that looked like advertising. So, can you guess which people and publications have been blocked from these headlines? That's the game. It is a little bit like blankety blank, for my taste. The winner is blank. The loser is blank. Best of three, buzz in with your name. Blank blank says the blank not blank blank, lobbied government to clip wings of blank. Matt. Matt. Uh, Ed Vasey. <laughs> yeah. Said that Channel 4 and Close. not Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. Oh no, The Guardian, yes. not Rupert Murdoch. Very good. Are the ones who wanted to do in the BBC in the white paper. Very good, yes. Uh, so this was in Parliament, wasn't it? Ed Vasey said the only people that have been lobbying me not to clip the wings of the BBC were not, as everyone thinks, the Times and the Sun, but the Guardian. What did you make of that, Kenton? Ed's quite mischievous. You can read all the white paper meeting uh, list in the back of the white paper if you want to get into the appendices. If you haven't got a life. Yes, uh, and everyone met the government to yeah, probably I do it. I think his head being mischievous. Okay, personally. well, I'll tell you what, let's do 10 seconds on Recipe Gate. What do you think of that? Everyone's got an opinion on that. Uh, it's mad, isn't it? That yeah, Something that exists should be taken off, and it's not really being taken off. It's going to be. It's been moved to good food, isn't it? It's, it's been moved to, to a commercial website yeah. where they can make money for yeah, the BBC. I mean, what? Yeah. How's that better? <sighs> I. I, I the BBC needs to not do everything and if it saves some money and creates money that can keep jur- journalists working at the BBC doing proper journalism publicly funded then I think that's a good thing so you've got you know they've got some cuts to make I think it's a sensible thing to do the audience won't be deprived of it it will move to a commercial website I don't see the issue so long as they keep the gazpacho recipe on that's all that's important to me right here's question number two blanks blank blank to return for two more seasons. Kenton. Kenton. Peaky Blinders. Yes. Um, to return for two more seasons. Yes, BBC's Peaky Blinders yeah. to return for two more seasons. We'd all make that decision, wouldn't we, if we were in charge? Yeah, it's great, isn't it? And it's a huge vote of confidence, and keeping that cast together is very difficult. So to keep Killian Murphy on board, you need to give him some commitment. The show's, you know, he's, he's the heart and soul of the show, so it's terrific, and it's a very, very, very brilliant slightly terrifying show i watched it this week it's it there's a lot of blood and guts in it there is uh, right we're at a tie break very exciting yeah here it is question Game number on. three what's the prize uh <laughs> we blanked it out so i don't <laughs> know uh blank blank appoints blank deputy as london bureau chief ahead of video expansion oh matt matt 
man from Newsnight, <laughs> now man from Vice. <laughs> uh, if you can fill in the blanks any better, Kenton, I'd be prepared no, to split this. There, no, okay. That's- uh, it was Vice News appoints Newsnight deputy as London bureau chief ahead of video expansion. So some jobs going from Vice, but obviously they're spending in other areas. Yeah, so they're launching Viceland TV channel in, in most in a lot of territories, and I imagine that they need to work out how they can churn out a load of cheap local content to fill um, mm. to fill Viceland UK to go in between programs made by more famous people in America I told you we'd end on a note of cynicism uh, but uh, optimism no it's going to be great Viceland I look forward to their their relationships with Ofcom (laughs) Uh, well uh, as Nicholas Parsons would say we found your contribution very amusing Kenton Uh, but Matt Deegan you are the winner Uh, that is uh, our show for today if you are new to this show hi glad you can make it if you subscribe you can get us every single fortnight bang on time you can do that via iTunes, of course. Uh, if you've got an iPhone, it's on the Podcasts app. Or if you've got an Android phone, what about Pocket Casts? There's a whole number of other podcatchers as well. Wherever you find us, press subscribe. And then that way you'll never miss an episode. Go and do it now. We'd like to dedicate this episode this week to Alan Forbes, an assistant producer for STV Glasgow. He is our latest monthly subscriber. Thank you, Alan. And big thanks to Roy Martin of I'm Roy Martin fame uh, from Radio Today. He made a very generous donation to this week's pod as well. Thank you, Roy. Join Alan, join Roy, go to themediapodcast.com slash dedicate. Do it now, help support the show. Thanks. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer is Matt Hill, and the Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.